0: Welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. Okay, Chris, um... Thank you so much for agreeing to uh, participate in this experiment. You're welcome. I know you've been in, in preparation for this. For this moment. Um Inspiring futures, this is, a, this is a, the idea of this podcast. It, it doesn't always, it's not always executed, but the idea is to talk about the future. We end up okay. often talking a lot about the past, but I think in some way, okay. you have to go back to the past to get to the future, right? Yeah. Um, So what I like, what I like to do, and it's sort of predictable, is for you to do sort of um, how did you get to where you are today in a sort of concise manner.
1: Um, I'm not known for being concise, so I'll try
0: (laughs) as concise as you can be.
1: I was never good at briefs. (laughs) Um, The concise story is that. Um, I started my career as a geography high school teacher and the only thing that really changed was the high school bit and um, without really understanding that much ended up in market research in London and then advertising BBO and what became Habas and then followed my (laughs) what Joseph Campbell would call bliss, uh, to the United States in nineteen ninety one, which is something I'd already always wanted to do. And uh, advertising as an industry seemed to be a really great way of doing that. So the motivation to come for for coming to the United States and travelling preceded my interest in advertising and marketing and things, still does did the Widening Kendi thing till 2002, based in Portland, and what was really cool about that from the geography point of view, was it was as Nike was opening up, really building its business in Europe, and then in Asia. So Widening Kendi opened up in London, Amsterdam, and Tokyo, and I was on, boys on the team that opened things up and did new things. So I got to travel around Europe, I got to travel around Asia. Um, left there in 2002, set up my own little thing called Studio Riley, which originally was a sound recording studio, which I just repurposed into a consulting business. Uh, Got Todd Waterbury to design a nice logo. Uh, Worked for Starbucks, worked for um, Nokia, which was pretty dramatic, because that was when uh, mobile phones were getting really popular before smartphones, when Nokia thought that the big idea was Uh, industrial design of phones that would fit in ladies purses (laughs) (laughs) and they and they actually uh, denied the importance of operating systems which kind of alarmed me so I cancelled the contract and um, but that had taken me again Helsinki Europe Germany Singapore Japan it was very global so by that point The geography thing had become just who I was, so I was never really content, or not to be honest, not very useful in situ. There's no no real static environment. You
0: had to be on the move.
1: Yeah, it just yeah. I could do. We worked for Miller in Milwaukee, and that was about as American as I really ever got. Never really understood how people were so Anyway, so uh, Apple came along as a client and then asked me to join the brand new Marcom group in 2005. And again, it was just as Apple, was this pr- the iPod had been launched. The Mac was still a disaster. Um, although they'd done think different, which had made people think they were interesting, but they hadn't yet fully upgraded the Mac to being a totally useful machine. Uh, And importantly, the company was going global. So I think when I joined, I would guess 20%, 25% revenue from outside the States uh, within three years of joining fifty-fifty. So that kind of transition, which also happened to Nike uh, and Microsoft I worked on. So it's as these businesses became global that I became more useful. Partly because I had a passport, partly because I was willing to travel, Uh, but but mainly because I've always absolutely loved this kind of exploration of people and places. So it worked for me. Uh, Did Apple until 2010. And then in 2010, uh, left Apple partly because I'd sort of lost my interest in the products, which is not a healthy thing if you're at a product company. Hmm. And... But mainly because I had become more interested in the impact of the products and social media than I was interested in the marketing of the products. And I just felt there was something to be done out there. Right. Um, And so I kind of professionally left in order to re-engage with people and places after quite a long time being primarily engaged in products and propositions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that set up Studio Riley in 2011 and here we are.
0: Cool. So, so there have been sort of points, points, trajectory points, key points in your career path where you've made, sometimes an abrupt change, yeah. Uh, sometimes an incremental change, you know, the, going from the geography teacher into research, was that?
1: Um, I was never going to be a good geography teacher. Um, it, it, the school environment didn't work for me. It didn't work for me when I was at school. It didn't work for me when I was a teacher. So it was a very smart, intelligent thing to do. But it proceeded possibly being just fired. <laughs> I, this, it didn't work. And, then, uh, and actually, I got into research through a professor at college who just said I should take a look at it as an industry. So I was mm-hmm. quite good at uh, quantitative stuff through uh, geography does that and I also studied American political science, so that was very quantitative as well. And this professor in the psychology department pointed me at uh, Peter Cooper. Was that a name back in the 80s?
0: seems to ring a bell.
1: If you're listening, Peter, I apologize for (laughs) saying, was that a name back in the 80s? Uh, But that was the first uh, research company that I was aware of and then I joined Roy Langmaid and Barry Ross and at QRC and off we went
0: QRC great company
1: yeah very. I was very lucky it was like me and my friend Barney Jacobson who uh, still runs QRC in its current form had uh, been knocking on the doors in Soho uh, presenting ourselves as fresh graduates um, presenting ourselves as the Jacobs and Riley Research Partnership and offering up research services, which we had no experience in delivering. And uh, fantastically, John Bartle, you know, incredible man, just took, gave us some time. Like it was, I don't know how many hours he gave us, but BBH had just opened their doors. Mike, Mike Willis was another great guy there. And they just were super encouraging and nice <laughs> and so we ran out of money and had to get jobs. I got one at QRC and Arnie went off and worked at a company called the Hutton Co- Company. Yeah,
0: but and eventually you are him back, yeah. So, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's interesting. I, I was told that QRC was the, I guess Arnie told me this, was was Goodby's planning department. Well, it was the model for Goodbye's planning department.
1: Um, probably they were they were the model for for Dan Wyden's acceptance of the idea of research and planning yeah so I got the job at Dan uh, at Wyden and Kennedy because Arnie and Vicky at QRC had done great work for Nike and had just shown that you know they're not evil that's not the enemy of we're not going to
0: destroy destroy things we're actually about Help him.
1: Yeah. yeah, they were super helpful and the agency and the client had been struggling with the women's business and in comes QRC to help understand how women are different to men when it comes to sports and fitness and Dan was just really, really, he's always allergic to research and planning, he'd been at McCann as well I think, and uh, was converted and I was their friend. <laughs> So,
0: you talked. You talked earlier about the, your desire to come to America before you even realised yeah. it. What was, what was that based? Was that based on the, your politics, studying politics, or was that based on something else? Uh,
1: it's a combination of uh, the natural, uh, naturally being in, enthralled by American blues music and Jimi Hendrix and all of that. Manchester, where I grew up, has a very lively music scene, and at the time it was super influenced by the blues so John Mayall's mother lived down the street and uh, so there's that basic just kind of dream world thing I loved the Rockford Files also Mm. and um, but when I went to college I went to a class on the origins of the Vietnam War and it was one of those things you hear about college kids you know you just go into one class and bam the lights go on and I changed my degree to American Studies. And so that interest, that pop culture interest, overlapped with a more academic interest. And through that, I learned about uh, the American approach to social science and data analysis and multivariate analysis and the tracking and polling and those kind of things, which were really not that uh, popular in the UK because you could kind of drive around the country in a couple of days. But in America, they were far more important tools, became, wrote a thesis on Reagan's first election, looking at whether or not people, it was called the intergenerational transfer of electoral behavior with special reference (laughs) to. So whether or not kids were voting like their parents. Um, So that got me enthralled. And I mean, you may recall in the late 70s and early 80s, unemployment was very high in the UK and in Manchester in particular so was always compelled to to seek something
0: yep to
1: break away know, a bit more robust mm. and America the world is becoming more global and so it made sense eventually to go to America but I'd always dreamed of going there and going there to live not just to visit I'd never intended to do the hitchhiking thing and go back home
0: right so you you, you landed at Wyden at the the start of this Nike story, not the start of it, but the start well, of the expansion.
1: Start, so when I landed it, they would just done Bow Nose. Right. And Revolution was the previous, you know, so it was like walking into Hollywood. I mean, the, the, the work was like nothing you'd ever imagined, let alone experienced. And I met, uh, I, I met with Jim Riswold, who's just the most amazing creative director. So he asked me, "How many commercials have you made this year?" Mm-hmm. And I'd made—I'd I'd worked in an agency, and we'd produced like three commercials in four years. You know. mm-hmm. And he had made twenty that year. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's just absolutely incredible. He had just done um, that fantastic Honda campaign with Miles Davis and Grace Jones and
0: mm-hmm.
1: the Honda scooters. Oh yeah. And so I, it was like walking into this thing. Oh, it's just incredible. It was very hard actually, but emotionally it was, I was just in awe. Professionally, it was incredibly hard. Yeah. But, um, we sort of made it work.
0: So, um, then the flip over to the client side, that, that's another dramatic
1: change. That was hard as well.
0: <laughs> well, i I guess what you're saying is man, these are, these are pretty significant transitions and they're yeah. hard and they're hard I
1: guess so yeah i guess so yeah they are hard what, you do, you,
0: what do you what so. do you how do you i mean you know naively you could put on put on a piece of paper if you were looking at fast companies most creative companies in the top 10 list might be Biden and kennedy and, right. and, and apple right
1: but, and nike
0: and nike but they are very different
1: yeah they are very different and that's why it's so hard i think um I'd like to pretend that I was courageous, but I wasn't courageous, so I was slightly ignorant actually, probably naive, because it was like... Well, oh, I was again in awe of being there, I remember sitting in the um, reception area on my first date going, I can't believe this, I mean, I'm, I'm actually an employee of Apple, <laughs> how did this happen? I had worked in Apple in 1984 because I was at BBDO and they had the accounts in right. Europe. Mm-hmm. So I had had a Macintosh since they were first launched. I was one of those um, people who was, I traded, you know, remember they used to have company cars in London and I had persuaded Gary Duckworth that to, to give me a second hand car but I needed an Apple, I needed a Mac mm-hmm. and it came and it was given to me in my cubicle and the whole agency came to my cubicle and watched me. Unpack and set up my 512k Mac with external hard drives and dot matrix printer um, And upon which we ran I ran multivariate analysis that's uh, of Discs that's I pinched from um, BBDO <laughs> <laughs> So uh, So being at Apple was just awe-inspiring and so I was really motivated to, to make it work uh, But very quickly re- learned the hard way People actually being very critical that ad agents, the way a the client, the way a company like Apple's work, is nothing like the way an ad agency works. Nothing. There's no similarity at all, um, because the consequences of decisions are so huge and complicated, and s- so many people get involved. And at ad agencies, you're used to kind of going, "Hey, Jim, what about the Muppets? Hey, Chris, let's do a storyboard." You know. And uh, you can't do that at a company like Apple. You have to get into the workflow. And the workflow is like 18 months. And so you, you, it was a real, it's a very hard transition, but sort of made it. <laughs> uh, and I always felt that I was being paid to learn at Apple, but I, that it was such an amazing experience with people that you never knew existed. If you're just an ad guy, you didn't ever meet the head of logistics. And then there he was. This is the guy who, you know, whose job it is to make sure that when the new iPod launched, it would be drop shipped from China via Federal Express in the exact quantity of iPods in silver and black and different hard drive sizes to last one weekend at every Apple store. And that meant predicting the sales at each individual store and drop shipping the right amount, right? And and he was this old flying tigers guy. This I can't guy could never his sleep. Name, he was never allowed to sleep. But you would never see that person if you were no. And um, obviously yeah.
0: Jobs was around, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so Steve, as we all call him, was absolutely in charge, and. Uh, you've felt that on a daily basis. I didn't report to him. Obviously, I reported to Alison Johnson and Alison Johnson reported to Steve. And, um, she would come back regularly from Steve meetings and debriefers and off we would go. Right. Sometimes a little brutal, (laughs) but she's fantastic. And, uh, they had just amazing people there, like you would imagine. Yeah.
0: So, um, do you think Apple, did Apple see the future? Did it, you know, talking to, if we're talking about the future, we're talking about Nokia didn't see the future because it, it thought it was all about beautiful handset design, not the software.
1: Oh, that's a good question. You know that phrase, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Yeah. So I think Apple was more like that. I don't think Apple people was, you know, I'm sure some people were. But we weren't sitting there thinking, oh, the future's gonna be C and D. But we did know that the products we were marketing uh, were different. And selling something that's relatively unique, particularly when it came to the iPhone, means you are sort of creating a future. I personally didn't ever imagine... Well, I could academically describe how media was evolving. And, And actually, I remember one presentation just before I left where I was super interested in how the power structure of media would alter as devices became mobile and social media became ubiquitous and what that would do to the media industry and how that would uh, affect politics and branding um, so sort of I, did
0: you did you sort of did you go to the sort of power to the people model or did you get to the facebook could you see because you see media new media giant and giant media entities emerging or did you see it as a sort of wholesale revolution going to the to the people
1: so my, the relevant part of my background was, in fact, the political studies, actually. So how media changed. So I, I, even back in the early 80s, I'd, I was interested that, you know, um, Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson sort of oversee. I think I get this right, but he oversee saw the creation of the U.S. Post Office, Postal Service, and that changed the way elections worked. mm mm-hmm. And Lincoln was a newspaper guy. That changed the way elections worked, radio, TV. Mm -hmm. So I'd always been interested in that, but very academically. What I didn't imagine was where, you know, literally where we are today. It wasn't like I had some crystal ball, but I was, but what I did know was that when, and many, many people knew it, right? No, this isn't, I just read, right? was that um, when the technology of media changes, society changes, politics change, because the, the narrative of politics is altered by the nature of the media. I'm a big fan of, as you can imagine, I love McLuhan's madness. Mm-hmm. That's why I wrote the book after the math mm-hmm. Age, right? And um, so, so you knew that culture would change and therefore consequentially everything you were working on would somehow be changed. Did you have an insight, did one have an insight about exactly how that change would manifest? I didn't, I was more academic. It was just like, here's a trend line. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: But but you did know that you had to pay attention to emergent media. And even when I left Widening Kennedy, part of the impulse was I had Joined really as television accelerated around the world as as the lead medium of mass consumerism, and I left when the internet did that, because I was chasing the next thing. The next thing, and
0: uh, well, uh, you see, you you had seen you were seeing the future, but the places you were at didn't see them as couldn't change as fast as you wanted them to change, maybe.
1: Not really. I think it was more a case of, uh, the, I've always, <laughs> it's really weird talking about me like this.
0: It's, it's just like therapy.
1: It's therapy. I have always, always, since I was a kid, since I was a teenager, preferred the fringe to the mainstream. Mm-hmm. I don't like New Order. You never did? I never liked New Order. I was in the audience of Joy Division. Right. So, and I've always loved music, and I've always loved the way music evolves at the fringes, mm-hmm. and then some of it, poof, suddenly it's in the mainstream. That process has always been interesting to me, and I think that's what uh, addicted me to Ivan Kennedy for eleven years. Is that it was a group of people who were equally interested. When I arrived, they'd just done a set of commercials with David Fincher. Sorry,
0: breaking up a little bit.
1: So you've got a very evil siren. Sorry, it's you had. Siren.
0: Breaking um, up a little bit. We've just done a series of commercials.
1: All right, so when I arrived at Whitening Kennedy, uh, the company had just produced a series of commercials for Nike with David Fincher. Right. Uh, you know, I'm sure you could go and hire David Fincher today and it would cost you a lot of money and he could make great commercials. But in 1990, he probably needed the money. I don't know, maybe he didn't, but he it was a radical act to go and hire David Fincher to do Nike mm-hmm. commercials. Uh, when we were doing Windows 95, uh, Steve Sanders and I persuaded Microsoft to use an unknown music producer called Brian Eno to make the boot up sound, and Wyden really encouraged you to do that. So even if you were in, you know, strategic planner, you were still encouraged to do that from the position of mining the fringe of popular culture.
0: Someone, someone once told me that it was the the um, Wyden's secret weapon was its was its uh, production department. That that they were the ones that were pushing the new directors and all the new stuff because there was a feeling that the creatives given their own left to their own devices would pick the people they trusted maybe that's completely wrong but i thought it was an interesting an interesting observation
1: what what dan and dave believed was that if you're going to have a production department or if you're going to have a media department anything outside of the creatives world right kind of teams mm. and if you're going to create a planning department they called it the Tiffany of advertising every department had to be the best in its field that was their mission so I don't think and, and so Billy Davenport's production department was completely melded with, with the creative leadership of the company um, and brought to the company I'm, Billy brought John Cayman to me, and I'm like the planning guy. And I met Cayman in like '93, and because that that's the way. So yes, I think yes they did, but it's more of a community. It's more like if you heard anything that was interesting, or if you, 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 that's what that was your job to,
0: to bring the interesting it was your stuff job, in, bring it in. Yeah,
1: and uh, we had to do it in my little planning group and count people. I mean, it, it was. That's that was the kind of approach, I guess.
0: So we were talking, we were talking about media revolution through the political yeah. lens, and di- I was saying, what's su- what has surprised you about how things have actually panned out versus how you thought they might have panned out?
1: I think uh, I, can, uh, I think that the the shock was. I think I drank the Kool-Aid of the Techno Utopians. I read Mondo two thousand and Wired, Wired magazine and I hung out in the bay, met Stuart Brand, you know. So I think like many people I was shocked when the internet revealed the awful underbelly of our society. I just didn't even con- even I didn't contemplate that. <laughs> it, um, and I think a lot of other people feel the same way. I think that uh, we were caught up in a bubble of optimism about how radical the idea of the distribution of media power really was. Um, and even back in the days of uh, chat rooms and bulletin boards, when Wyatt ran that article about the day alt rec cats was attacked by alt rec dogs or something. <laughs> And all these people went into this chat room where cat owners just swapped stories about their cats, right? Completely benign. But they went into this chat room and started contributing in terrible ways. They're telling stories about cats which were untrue and vile and violent and disgusting. So even though that... Then we thought that was funny. I remember that article. But I, I don't think I ever understood the true depth of change that that this revolution would actually create specifically around fanning you know the toxic elements what I would consider to be the toxic mm. elements of society the violence that you know the intolerance the, the the nastier side of human nature that that I was not prepared for that
0: mm. seems like seems like Facebook wasn't either
1: well Facebook was founded so that sort of marginalized young men could think they could get laid. So it's sort of their DNA is a bit awkward. (laughs) Uh, But again, I think many of the people who went to Facebook uh, went having been sold a dream that the world would be a better place if we connected it. Um, And so this Reality that we're discussing, I think, has been a shock to a lot of people there, and it's been very destabilising.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems like the the we the revolution has created companies of such enormous scale, size, and power. They're, yeah. They're, they're, you know, there was a lot of people talking about long tail and hyper fragmentation and we're all going to have our own media company and we're all going to have me tv and there's going to be millions of media entities
1: (laughs) which has turned out to be true it's just all being aggregated by google
0: right google and monetized by google yeah
1: um our mutual friend mark bardin of course worked uh with black rocket on yahoo and do you remember the portal strategy versus the search strategy? And, right. Um, and I think we all knew that advertising was going to be consequential. I don't think I knew or I imagined it would be the most consequential element of the Internet. Um, so I think, kind of the, the, going back to your question about the surprise, Um, I remember telling I I have a wonderful father and I remember telling my father this terrible stupid kind of early 20s nonsense right dad perception is more important than reality I work in a perception business you know and I've always been embarrassed that I did that to my poor father he must have been so upset that I was such a shallow venal (laughs) young man but tragically, it's turned out to be correct. And so that, that moment has lived with me. And I remember it frequently, because it, I look out in the world and I'm shocked at, or surprised, surprised and shocked, at how our discipline has actually become so so huge. Right. And so, so it does change the world, but I don't think we ever imagined it would change the world in the negative ways that it has. Um, and I think it sometimes you've got to really kind of go to your happy place and figure out how you can work work on stuff that's is is actually quite good. It is ethical and so when I wrote the book, part of the motivation was to draw attention to the power and importance of ethics. Right. And I could never have imagined that thought twenty years ago or thirty years ago. And now I think it's probably the single biggest challenge facing anybody who works in media and creative work, does creative work.
0: So so when you when you think about when you think about ethics in the context of this technological revolution and the and the availability of technologies. Yeah. How, 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 do, how, does a, how does a company demonstrate its ethics?
1: By having them. <laughs> do
0: you think many, do you, well, think, do, you think, do you think at the end of the day a lot of companies don't have ethical standards or are they not in the...
1: I don't think that's fair. I mean, my experience is most people I've ever met in all the businesses I've ever worked for and with have been truly great, good human beings. Well,
0: there was the documentary called "The, the Corporation."
1: Uh, Do you ever remember watch that? that?
0: Yeah. Well, it was the, the whole thing was um, the premise of the of the documentary was um, the UN had some definitive description of psychotic behavior, and they used um, this as a as a lens to um, say that if if a corporation was was a being, it would be. A psychopath, yeah, a psychopath, and um, that you know, I think I think we all collectively have that experience that the people we've worked with individually at corporation in corporations are fantastic, and one one stands back, aghast, and says, "How can all these individuals somehow manage to um, not perform at their utmost, and that the, the the sort of the the they 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 never." the corporation never allows them to be their best selves or the corporation never gets the best selves out of them it's this it's this entity i mean obviously there are exceptions and obviously um i'm speaking in very generalized terms yeah but um there is a difference between what a corporation believes in and what an individual and in a corporation is about and i always found that when i worked on coca-cola i always found this is actually wonderful people working there but the organisation was a, was very different and, and, and its ethics and its way of working were very different
1: I had that experience <laughs> with Coca-Cola as well you know I don't know how to have this conversation really because it's such a big one but um, I do feel that
0: Maybe we just, maybe somebody censored us.
1: Oh, hello again. You're back. I
0: think we had a censorship issue. It seems like yeah. someone froze the, the video. Executives
1: at, the executives at Coca-Cola found out we were like about to like say bad things about them. Um, there are things that we know today that we did not know. When Coca Cola began to sell high fructose corn syrup to the masses. Right. Right? We just did not know. Um, there, there was a time when we did not really understand the deleterious impacts of smoking. Yep. We did not know the impact mm-hmm. of the oil industry on climate and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think sometimes we get a little wrapped up in the negativity when when in fact we're just part of a longer story the world, these problems are being addressed in my opinion the, the, the corporate world that we know today is different to the corporate world that I first encountered in my twenties it is concerned about a lot more uh, than it was concerned about back then um, so I, I'm reasonably optimistic and also um, because i grew up in a city with extreme levels of unemployment where heroin was cheaper than beer
0: Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Um, primarily that disaster that happened to britain was a failure of of management it was a british Leyland. All those companies were managed by a pseudo aristocracy that lived in big houses and didn't care about the workers and the unions were defeated and all of that story. And so um, I would be, a, I am, a, I, I love business. I'm an advocate for, actually, if you if you step back, yes, there are many, many problems. Of course there are. But fundamentally, um, the, the many businesses have, have given amazing life, life, livelihoods to thousands, hundreds, and millions of people. Mm-hmm. Um, when I worked on Peugeot in London, those guys who worked at the Coventry factory were in work because we did successful car watches.
0: Right,
1: re- And that meant, I was talking about that with my brother yesterday, he's an airframe engineer for British Aerospace, and he, he and I were just swapping notes about stuff. And I realized how proud I was at that moment that because we were doing great ads at Horner College for Persia, take your breath away, these guys had jobs. That connection means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's the same here in Portland. When I arrived in Portland, uh, it was a city down on its economic luck. Well, thank you, Nike. Right. Thank you, US Bank. Thank you, Intel. All these businesses that have flourished in the last, I've lived here since 1991, this is a thriving, low employment, popular city within which we have our homeless problems. We have lots of problems like every city. But fundamentally, it's businesses have have played a very important part in its growth. And, uh, you know, I work in India and Bangladesh, and, you know, it's easy to go look at the terrible situation and the garment workers and all that stuff that we all get kind of on a high horse about and we all feel morally good because we have a point of view and we don't want them to make cheap T-shirts and da-da-da-da. We'll go spend six months in Dakar, Bangladesh and ask yourself, okay, it's more complicated than it appears. Mm-hmm. People really are beginning to thrive. I mean, there is, you can't go and uh, say, oh, by the way, because you've got bad working conditions, we're going <clears> to <throat> choke off your economic
0: activity. right. right
1: you have to be more thoughtful than that excuse me <clears throat>
0: yeah I mean it's, so, you're right it's, easy to, it's yeah. easy to be it's easy to be reactionary um
1: and I mean I, I went I, to China once and was, did a thing about the environment and this young woman from Ogilvy May there came up afterwards and said how can you come over here and tell us we can't have refrigeration right it was a very moment, good moment for me to get that kind of clip upside the head yeah. to remind you that, oh right, you can fly in business class from a fancy ad agency and give a holier than thou presentation without truly understanding people's lives.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, what I think is interesting is though there was this, uh, this sort of, um, I, was talking to, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, this, this idea of change. That, that right. there are stages of acceptance that, you know, um, the insight was it what was the, what was the movie with Russell Crowe? It was it was about it was about the tobacco industry. Going all the, these big industries, tobacco, oil, they, even Coca-Cola to some extent. They, they they're they're in the stages of denying the truth denial. Right. Right. You know what I mean? It's the shredding yeah. of the documents. It's the climate change doesn't exist. They, they seem to go, you know, you go through a place as business is, business is normal. Then there's something happens where it realizes, well, actually, we are harming the planet or we are harming people's health. And then, you know, this, that, that's such a shock to the system because it means the future and those thousands of jobs or whatever are in jeopardy. So there's sort yeah. a sort uh, of a process of not accepting that information or hiding it. And then, right. they, then they come out the other side and they say, actually, you know, you know this is happening. We are expanding our portfolio, or we are looking for alternative fuel sources, or whatever it is. But there is a there is a moment between those two states where 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 the ugly side kind of does tend to show itself.
1: Right. You know, I think. I think you're right. And do you want to be the person who shuts down the factory?
0: <laughs> no. You
1: know, I think we're all human. There's also an, another thing going on which may be of interest, and that is uh, at the studio we refer to it, and it's getting some traction as the, the, the rise of the majority world. So I went to this presentation by a guy called, a wonderful guy called Shahidullah Alam who came from Dhaka, Bangladesh. He was at Stanford. And he said, We are not your. We are not, here's a baritone voice, I can't remember this, we are not. We are not your third world. No. We are the majority world and we're coming to get you. Yeah. And it had a big impact on me because I realized that I had in my cultural self, I was still a colonialist. I was still looking at the third world as something down the hierarchy. And I think one of the changes we um, that I'm, I'm particularly excited by and horrified by and engaged with is this this, this rise of the majority world. That the birthplace of the industrial revolution is continuing to shrink. Uh, Britain, it doesn't, you know, no. Britain is neither great nor actually Britain. It's neither united nor a kingdom. it has has continued its process of shrinking down to England. And England has no idea what to do. And America is going through that. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, in the 90s, Nike, Coca-Cola, President Clinton, President Obama, Ford, like this was it, Elvis Presley. Um, And it's going through its own realization that it's not a pyramid. You are not sitting on the top looking down, you're part of a network, and people of, people who are not only your equal socially, they are your equal intellectually, they are your equal creatively, have now got access to what they need in order to flourish. Um, I've never visited Lagos, Nigeria, but one of my friends has been doing work there, an architect, and it's just something. He, he's just like completely. His mm-hmm. mind is exploding. It's so incredible. Yeah. Um, and so that that is a really big deal. So going back to your thing about the corporations, the corporations were created in America uh, by people like um, who, uh, what's his name, Tilson of Exxon, who became I don't know Secretary of State for a brief moment, Rex. Tillerson. Tillerson. So, check out this guy, right? Captain of industry, uh, proselytizing born-again Christian, and uh, on the board of the Cub Scouts, or whatever, the Scouts of America, right? This is the conjoining of a capitalist drive with a Christian ethicality, his success is justified culturally because he's a Christian, he's a good Christian, as well as a good captain of industry. Well, in that mythology, in that tradition, God gave us the earth for us. It's ours to use. So, of course, it's conjoined in an oil company. There is no moral crisis if you're a a devout and I'm sure he is I'm not you know I'm sure he's a devout man but but the religion teaches him that this is okay so he can go and do fracking deals with Putin. Asian culture is different the world isn't given to you to use as a resource in Hindu in Confucian in Shinto It's not. And so those attitudes are different. So the kind of cultural hegemony that's baked into Western corporations is not necessarily baked into Asian and African corporations. And I think that's actually gonna be one of the biggest turbulent changes we're gonna have to go through. We have to unhook our cultural narrative Mm -hmm. at a deep level. Um, in order to accept that the changes we're challenged to do, um, the changes that we have to confront are bigger than our own cultural identity. We can't get, we can't be validated in the way that the head of Exxon Mobilis or the president of the United States, we have to find a different form of validation, I think. And that's where ethics comes in, because ethics is not the same as morality. Ethics are, um, are communal. You and I can set up a business together and agree some basic ethics of how we want to conduct that business. It's an agreement between us. Uh, and I think that agreement is, is the centerpiece of, of the kind of work you and I do and others do going forward. Um, We're going to agree and let everybody know that we're going to adhere to these ethics because, in part, the ethics that enabled us to be successful were enshrined in law. They were regulations. There were certain things you couldn't do. But now those regulations are kind of unbundled because the Internet is difficult to regulate. Uh, So that's, that's an important thing going forward.
0: But I mean when you, even though you could talk about um, the demise of the iconic, I mean in global America dominant, America's cultural icons dominating global culture, you're talking about that. And and you can say that that's going away, Um, but even America has an amazing capacity to continue to sort of invent things that have relevance in the world. I mean, the Silicon Valley, the hackathon, the new ways of thinking about business, you see that everywhere. You probably see it in Bangladesh. There's probably a hackathon going on this weekend or if not right now. Um, (coughs) Right. China. Yeah. I mean, they sort of, they're sort of American concepts. And what 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 seems interesting to me is like that even the, just because it's new, I mean, I'm sure this is something you've thought about. I mean, the, the, the trajectory of companies like Uber, you know, they almost go through a quasi-illegal phase. It's almost, well, yes, you're a stealth-up company. Well,
1: Michael Jordan was quasi-illegal as an NBA player. Uh, Andre Agassi was quasi-illegal wearing colored clothes at Wimbledon. So yeah. I think you're right. I mean, at the end of the day, and that's very American. Right. Civic, civic disobedience.
0: But almost uh, but, but almost almost a flouting of any ethics. Uh, you know, the, the the ethics sort of go out the window because there is a sort of a singular motivation which is growth at all costs.
1: Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, I think there's a different I think there's a, I worked with this company in London called Zoe in his dietary business. I mean, they said, oh, my goodness, you've become very American. And it's because they said, here's what we do. You obey the law and you fight the law. That's what we do. You, you obey the law and then you do everything in your power to fight it because that's the democratic process. And I think Uber, Uber had a whole bunch of ethical crises that were nothing to do with their business model. And what everything to do with just being run by some people with dodgy <laughs> attitudes to stuff. Um, but I met with Travis, I can't remember his second name now, mm-hmm. and but and he was pointing out the reason why you can't get a taxi easily in San Francisco is because of the regulatory system. So if we want to do this thing where you can just get a car and go anywhere, which is a legitimate thing to want people, we have to fight the regulatory system. So we have to break it. So that's in keeping with what you're saying, but I wouldn't say that it's somehow greed versus good. I'd say that when systems are being attacked, they're being attacked. Yeah,
0: I think this. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. I, I like. I like the idea that you know to start something new. There's got to be a rebelliousness. You've got to challenge the status quo. Um, but it seems to me that, that also people get confused in a culture that, that practices that, and suddenly it's okay to uh, go hack lifts uh, database and uh, steal their data, and suddenly these are the. the, the you don't really have, you don't you're not really, you don't have a clear ethical code and so if you don't have a clear ethical code um, then I think your culture swims dangerously into areas that just don't seem so great.
1: Yeah, and we've always had bad actors, there's always been bad people breaking the law. Yeah. Um, and now some of those laws are very weak. It's very difficult to figure out how to prosecute the guy who hacked Lyft so what's the law there um but even that's changing now right so i, I kind of agree with you but at the same time um
0: well i mean i well, I guess what i'm saying is if we were talking about the the, the new majority and somebody in, in the Dakar,
1: majority world
0: a majority world yeah um do you think they follow you said are they following their own ethical code that is very different from ours or are yes they, oh you think they are very different yes so a startup and so,
1: so, and that, but i'm not what i'm not saying is, is that it is that it's either better or yeah, worse it's just different it's, it's different so in a collectivist culture the idea of an intellectual property is different so that's japan and, and and then we the mirror then becomes well okay. We have our own ethical code, and, and part of the ethical code of the United States is that intellectual property is yours and it's it's property. Property is so important to our culture. It's not that important in Africa. <laughs> and and so if you've got the choice between, uh, medicating somebody so right. that they don't get some horrible disease and you can't afford the drugs because an American corporation owns that intellectual property just hack the thing yeah and, and and we would think of it as stealing and they would think of it as curing the sick right so, why, so where are the ethics there so I think we have we are going to be challenged so we are being challenged clearly we're being challenged
0: so, so how, do, how do people so you're, so you're a senior executive in an American company, and you're your, what what do these what does what needs to happen to for people to get this?
1: I think two things need to happen. The first is, and it's the entire premise of the business I now run, is learn from people, learn from them. The days when you I, most of my career, I was dispatched to various places to learn about people. Let's learn about teenagers in Japan. Let's learn about this. Learn about that. Uh, my friend Kay Scorey you must it's okay. Uh, Kay, she goes when corporations listen, they do so to sell. Stop. You're listening in the wrong way. So first of all, really, really change the way you learn and listen, and learn from people. Um, and lots of these companies now have extraordinarily talented people working in the company in different countries but they don't create um a, a, there is no listening language for them so you can and Kay told me this you can elevate a woman in india to a position of seniority but she still has to adapt to your way of working and talking and communicating so you're you're not benefiting from her wisdom her grandmother her experience uh, so we need. that's the first thing we need to do the second thing uh, is I would just completely get rid of nearly every market researcher <laughs> but I, I I think that we've been sold a, a bag of goods a bill of goods whatever the phrase is mm-hmm. on things like brand values and mission statements and all of that world which basically is the formalization of ignorance it's like everybody's mission statement is the same, it's a cliche but these kind of oh we've now got our brand values we're going to stick to them You know, but then the behavior of the corporation is antithetical to what the brand values have been decided by the ad agency or by whatever. So I think the reason why I'm passionate about ethics is I think the CEO and the board of directors can adopt ethics and can then do the hard work of implementing those ethics across their company. Mm. And it's not a communication problem. It's uh, a... Internal culture. Yeah, exactly. And it's a managerial problem. Like, we are not going to do that. So that company's done it, and they're taking our market share. We can't do that. We have to think of something else. So I also feel that, you know, I come from a creative background, so what you and I know, constraints, as Mark talks about, constraints Mm -hmm. lead to creativity. Give the business the constraints it needs. And that can only happen... In the leadership and in and in the boardroom, uh, we can help them because um, the creative process is beautiful in this regard. <laughs> we actually do creative work does reveal these things and it, and
0: brings them to life the
1: way you... it brings them to life. And you know, we work with photojournalists, and when we show the image the stories that our photojournalists have created in boardrooms and I'm, I'm, I'm presenting this I hardly have to say anything because we know mm-hmm. how to decode images yeah and we've not been shown good images we've been shown nothing other than Getty images stuff that's been swiped from the internet nobody we don't we used to open up Time magazine or yeah, Life yeah. magazine or and be, or National Geographic and those stories really impacted us we need that level of quality uh, in the corporations, so that they can learn about people and places. Obviously, I'm a geographer, right? So, but I, I really believe that if you genuinely do learn from all of this, you are changed.
0: But you, it's almost like you also have to, you sort of have to step into their shoes. I think that's the problem. It's, it's, it's how do you, how do you get people to experience something they haven't experienced?
1: I mean, well, our, our answer is by hiring professional photojournalists in market.
0: Yep, to get to
1: bring that. To That's us. our approach. There's many, many yeah, other yeah. approaches. Many.
0: So, so, but, just to, just to conclude, um, who who do you look at benchmark? Who's who out there uh, gets? Is there is other? Is this too new to have benchmarks for people for you to look at and say these companies are. <laughs> doing these things in an interesting way that they get it or is it is it too emergent I
1: I I, I there's something going on in the fashion industry when you see new when you see new fashion there's something going on there that I think is probably very interesting there's something about the fact that the ad industry never got any traction with the fashion industry right. the fashion industry turned out to produce the best brands now they've got their own ethical crisis uh, we work for uniqlo so we're right at the front line of that Yep. um
0: well fashion the fashion brands had creativity at the center and it was always a yeah, clash it so, was always so, a clash right
1: with that um i mean i have to say that in here in portland you can't help but be in awe of even when they make mistakes you have to admire nike Mm -hmm. you just have to they their capacity to learn and change and be motivated in the main by all the right things is pretty impressive to me yeah
0: i don't think they get enough credit for that i don't I, i think you know they're they're kind of a legacy company that's managed to get it You know, in a world where everyone's critiquing legacy companies for not being able to evolve and change. Well it's
1: because it's because every single Nike person loves athletes. And athletes don't put up with this shit. Athletes are dealing with every problem we can imagine. Right. (laughs) And and so they've got they've got this learning, or they learn from their athletes. And of course, in my career obviously I was super influenced by by how they do marketing and how they learn, they're not sitting around just thinking that a millward Brown presentation has got value which obviously it doesn't, never has done but they, they, you know, people would get back in the day people would get on buses and go to college campuses and figure stuff out with yeah. students,
0: yeah.
1: so they're just a very good learning organization I guess I, I was super influenced by the way uh, by Senge and the uh, the fifth discipline, remember mm-hmm.
0: that—the
1: art and practice of the learning organization—and and in that book, he says the best test of the health of a company is the speed with which bad news travels from the bottom to the top.
0: Uh, yeah.
1: And Apple, Steve knew before you knew.
0: Yeah.
1: He read his emails.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, it's um it it's interesting. I just I was just looking just now at, um Croft um which which I think is a, is a, is a fascinating, you know, here's the it, here's inter- it's an interesting story because you have got you've got 3G from Brazil. Yeah. Um who um Believe in zero-based budgeting, which apparently yeah. was a book written as a joke. In the seventies, no. uh, it was a satirical play on what could happen. Versus, it was never supposed to be real. Uh, Who are very, very good at cost containment and and um, you know controlling costs and and uh, ultimately firing people. I think I think they actually say, look, uh, one of the one of the companies they were saying, you know. If you don't want to do two jobs, we'll find a 24-year-old with an MBA from Sao Paulo who will. Um, but their their model is in all kinds of trouble. I mean, this is uh, they don't know how to innovate. Uh, they had a CEO today who said, um, uh, "I want our, I want our advertising to be seen by more people, but I don't want to pay agency fees to develop the creative, and we need to be at the cutting edge." And understand trends, but I'm not prepared to invest any money to learn. So I'm not sure how that how that works. It seems uh, it, it seems you, you're given yourself quite a few constraints, maybe too many.
1: That's interesting. I um, many years ago with my friend John Jay, I visited the Mall of America
0: in Minneapolis. Was it
1: in Minneapolis yeah. uh, with Mickey Drexler and uh, Mickey Drexler took it into the newly opened Gap store when he was running Gap um, and proceeded. I mean, I don't know what I was at, I was like 35 or something. And it was just like a master class in understanding your customer and your business. Mm. You just followed Mickey Drexler around. And he, he had this sixth sense, well, he was just learning, he was just watching. And he would see a customer looking at a piece of clothing. And he would just walk up to her and go, hi, I'm Mickey Drexler, the president of The Gap. What do you think of that T-shirt? <laughs> and I saw him do it so many times. And we were in San Francisco later and he, you know, the, is it the Fisher family that there's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Fisher family, the business side of the equation, had decided that they needed to get to, to kind of get to grips with some fundamental business problems. And so, the, the, this consulting company—I don't know who they were—had arranged a focus group, and uh, we were invited. So I ended up. <laughs> I ended. Up, there's a the reason I'm telling you this. I ended up uh, behind the mirror as this poor moderator tried to run a focus group of uh, women who who were buying clothing for themselves and their children. You know, literally the smartest customers in the entire world are probably mums who are dressing their children, right? Mm -hmm. And it just wasn't going very well. And Mickey Drexler was behind me, and all I could hear was this kind of thumping and this kind of rustling because he was just getting agitated. And eventually he says, can I just go talk to these people? (laughs) And the uh, the consultant said, no, that's not the way it's done. They'll know, you you know, no, we can't do that. And he got more agitated. And uh, eventually I I turned around to him and said, you know what? You can do whatever you want. You're the president of the company. If you want to go and talk to these folks, just go and talk to these Mm. folks. So this poor moderator's is there. The door flies open. In walks Mickey Drexler. There's all these women. And he goes, hi, I'm Mickey Drexler, the President of the Gap. You just said the fuck... And the whole room animated. And they were like, you, you know, you're always putting stuff on sale. It's always at the back. Why can't you just get your prices down? Good point. We're opening Old Navy. You, what did you say about that? And these women just thought, I've got my 10 minutes. Yeah. Of the President to the Gap. Yeah. And it was incredibly inspirational. So your friend at Kraft can say that at, as long as he walks the walk. Yeah,
0: I remember when Branson, I know Branson used to invite people, his upper class passengers, for a weekend at his manor house. Oh. And it literally they had to have dinner, and that's what they talk about. It yeah. would be his version of a focus group.
1: Right, right, and Nike did that. Yeah. Nike send you out, and you have to know your athletes. You can't work on the running business without a being a runner or b spending your weekends with runners.
0: Well, also Mark Parker is he's a he's an amazing leader. I mean, he's 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 turned
1: into an extraordinary.
0: I mean, he gets product, he gets design, he gets culture.
1: Yeah, and he's a you know he's also a kind human being. Yeah, he's a generous man. Um, which I think matters actually. I think the reason he's very successful is in part because he's actually a very decent person who's also got the discipline to make difficult decisions.
0: Yeah. So, um, who would you who would you suggest some of the themes we talked about? um, What should people be reading? Listening to? Following? Who? Me- um, you mentioned the man, the man, the man you saw talk. Uh,
1: Shahidul alam S-H-A-D-I. Shahid, Shahid Alam. So,
0: alam and, and, and he's at Stanford?
1: No, he's a, he's, a, he runs a photo agency and photographic school in Dakar, Bangladesh.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, he's just come out of prison because uh, he criticized the government before the election, so put him in prison. Uh... So he's but, he's, but that whole world, we're working with a photographer in India this week, called Raghu Rai, who's 76 years old and was documented India after the partition. Photographed their sister, to, uh, Teresa, what a saint, Teresa, whatever the name is, I can't remember now. Mother Calcutta. Teresa. Mother Teresa. I'm more on the Hitchens side of things than the Catholic side of things. Uh, and photographed Pandit Nehru and Gandhi and blah, blah, blah. Mm. Uh, and so I'm finding that these, it's really worth getting out of the business world and digging around with people like that. I'm also, I'm reading right now, 21 letters by Charles Handy. Because again, he's 86 years old and I'm really curious as to what these, uh, people have lived, lived long lives and seen a lot to change. What's, what are they saying? How are they feeling about stuff? And I've always been a fan of Charles Handy. He wrote The Elephant and the Flea. I read it in the 80s and decided I would always be a Flea. Um, so he had a big influence on me. Um, actually there's a business book which I think is quite good, uh, which is um, No Ordinary Disruption. It's by a group of people from McKinsey, Richard Dobbs being one of them. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to read the book, he did a really good presentation in London to the business of fashion audience, which summarizes the book in fifteen minutes, and I share with a lot of people.
0: And it was, his his whole it's about what's happening right now.
1: Yeah, he basically says here are the four things that are disrupting the global economy. Any one of them would would disrupt your 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 company, and we're having four at the same, same time. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very good presenter and he points out that which I think is true uh, that if you're in a position of leadership today, you got there because you made good decisions during the course of your career and not a single one of those decisions would work today, like you, you actually have no experience You you can't rely on your past experience to make decisions today, so you have to rely on your instincts and your judgment and you have to listen and learn and you're still capable of doing it, but don't think and
0: what you, what, you know what, you, what to took do. you what took you to where you are today is going to yeah.
1: help you in the future.
0: Yeah, they, yeah. they they've written. Um, I've been interested in this whole thing on the superstar company concept. I don't know if that's part of the same thing, but but more okay. e- more economic value is being driven by fewer and fewer companies, and uh, it's sort of like there's two there's a there's a head and a tail, and right? The, and and the head is is taking out more economic values and then right. the, the the end of the tail is losing more money so you've actually got a whole load of companies who are kind of in limbo land they're not making a lot of econo- economic profit um and the economic profit is and they've actually kind of identified the traits of these companies and and, and some of the some of it involves geography actually because there's right. there's, a, there's a superstar companies have a geographic centers Right. Um, and then the other fascinating thing is that mobility is possible. So you can be a complete dog, losing tons of money, but given the right strategy, yeah, you can move up, which is sort right. of obviously, obviously a selling point for them. Yeah, but it is interesting.
1: Robert Kaplan, The Revenge of Geography, is another book.
0: Is that new it's, or is that old?
1: No, it's not very new. No, that's a... uh, I, I, I met with um, Joy Ito the head of MIT recently. Yep. And he's written a book called Whiplash. And um, I think on like page 33 or something, he announces that um, culture is strategy.
0: Right, yeah.
1: And he articulates it extremely well. So no point anymore having a five-year plan, but, ha- but create a culture that can adapt to whatever comes across and that kind of stuff. So I thought coming from MIT that was pretty interesting.
0: I read about him some recently. He's going somewhere else, isn't he? Oh, know. really? I did not yeah, know yeah. that. Yeah, I was yeah, he's a super interesting person. Yes. All right. Well, that was we could do another 2 hours of this rambling on about all kinds another of interesting time. stuff, but we 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 uh, <laughs> let's call this part 1. Okay. Of a conversation with Mr. Riley. Thank you very much for your time.
1: You're very welcome. Thank I'm you for
0: Jade's organization.
1: Jade, without whom?
0: Life could not go on.
1: Life was simply not <laughs> operate.
0: So uh, great talking to you. Really. This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.